So it's wonderful to welcome Phil Orchard to share with us this morning. So I have a confession to make, some admin error that I made. We actually moved around the teaching series a little bit just to get the right topics on the right days and different speakers. And uh, we were originally going to be doing this topic, which is the parable of the wheat and the tares and also the parable of the net from Matthew chapter 13. We were due to do it last week, which worked wonderfully because Shoaling were also doing it last week. So uh, Richard did a fantastic talk at Showling last Sunday. Sarah and I were there. Really good talk on this topic. So for those of you at Showling, you have the wonderful opportunity to discover even more about this wonderful parable. But uh, we'll try and coordinate a bit better next time. But there's always, it's like so many of these things, there is so much that God speaks to us through these parables and gives different perspectives. And I'm sure there'll be even more that will come out today. So Phil, thank you for speaking. Over to you. Thank you. Jesus famously said, my father is the gardener. Well, in my house, my wife is the gardener. <laughs> and I am under strict instructions not to dig anything up or cut anything down or prune anything back, except what I'm allowed to touch, which is just the lawn. Special occasions when things are out of Maggie's reach. Actually, quite a few occasions things are out of her reach. I may be called in just to have a little bit more height reach. But uh, you see, I, I, I don't blame her because um, I have a notorious track record of actually digging up the flowers with the weeds, um, digging up the bulbs with the unwanted stuff, and pruning things back so radically that they never recover. I don't know if you remember, I know we're in June now, but, um, and I was a bit late to the party, but there was such a thing as no mow may. Anyone come across that? No mow may was the idea that if you had a, a lawn, that you weren't to, to mow the grass or some of the grass in May, let it grow so that wildlife and insects and what have you have a chance to do whatever they do with stuff that grows, you know. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I think the council have taken this to heart, actually, really, because there are all sorts of swathes of land around the city that are just full of weeds, uh, and they've been deliberately left to grow for very green conservation reasons, I'm sure. <laughs> so... Um, our parable, or one of the two parables this morning, Jesus wasn't so much talking about gardening, more about farming, but it's still along the same principles. So could we have the first, thank you, hope you can see that. This is a reading from Matthew chapter 13, and uh, Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, 
the, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. In this series on the parables of Jesus, or some of the parables of Jesus, we're learning something each time about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. doesn't mean that any one parable tells you everything about the kingdom of God. In fact, usually the parable just tells you one thing. This parable is uniquely here in Matthew's gospel, chapter 13. A bit later, in the same chapter, we read the disciples. So this was in a public setting, Jesus told that story, and then more privately with his disciples. They, as it were, take him to one side and say, Master, could you explain that to us, please? What on earth were you on about? And he tells them this. Neil, next slide. Still in Matthew 13. The su this is Jesus answering their question. Please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. And he said, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the wor world and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will remove from His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Now, this, these are very difficult, serious, somber words of Jesus, are they not? And uh, before we say anything more about them, both the parable and Jesus' explanation, let me read to you a, a, an overlapping parable a bit later in the same chapter, the parable of the fishing net. And so we read again, just a bit later, verse 47, Jesus continues this, a similar theme about the kingdom of heaven. He says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I know. It's right, but it's difficult, isn't it? Let's be honest. These are not 
simple things to think about or nice things to think about, but that's not to say they're not true. And so we take seriously all the words of Jesus, not just those that sit more comfortably with our sensibilities. What Jesus is saying here, if you put these overlapping parables together, is that the kingdom of God inevitably involves separation. There is a sorting out that will happen at the end. And so, if you have to put a paper of division between the two parables we've just read, you could say that the first one tells us that there will be a separation, okay, the wheat from the weeds, and the second one tells us that the separation will happen at the end of the age. It does not happen now, it happens at the end. And in the meantime, the weeds grow up alongside the wheat. The fish, both good and bad, are in the same net together. There is a messy mixture in this world until the end when the harvesting angels come and bring in this scary thought of separation. Now, this is in, in total line with what Jesus and, and others like John the Baptist say elsewhere. So, Neil, if you just put up the next slide. I put three passages here together, short passages together, and the first one is John the Baptist speaking. So, so look at the theme here. Is it the same? John the Baptist, referring to Jesus, says, someone is coming who is greater than I am. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. So John the Baptist, straight away at the outset, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was one coming after me who's, who, whose shoes I'm not, I'm not even worthy to, to clean or tie up. And he says, this one, the Messiah, will separate chaff from wheat. An image that was so familiar to them then. They saw, they saw the farmers doing that, taking their winnowing fork, throwing the wheat into the air, letting the wind blow the chaff away so that the wheat remains. A separation. Not only that, if we look at the next one, the one in the middle, these are the words of Jesus again in Matthew 25. The, the story, I'm not going to call it a parable because it's not. It's a story. It's a description of what happens at the end, at the time of judgment, with an analogy about a shepherd. And Jesus says this, when the Son of Man, that's Himself, He Himself, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, when He returns to earth, it hasn't happened yet, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in His presence and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Can we see the theme here? There is separation going to happen, but it has not happened yet. Now, probably the most famous verse to most people in the Bible is the one at the bottom of the screen. John 3.16, Jesus again. For God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not 
perish but have eternal life? What is the reason that the Father has given His Son to come to earth? It's so that in this separation at the very end, we will be saved from that which otherwise would cause us to perish. And instead, that we could receive the gift of eternal life. So there is a separation between tragically, tragically those who do not receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus and therefore perish, and those who do receive His salvation enter into the kingdom and receive eternal life. That's the difficult but truthful picture of what we're dealing with here. It's all about, of course, the kingdom will involve judgment. Scripture does talk about Scripture, Jesus. And throughout the pages of the Bible, there is talk of judgment. For example, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit has come and is coming and will come, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will do what? He will convict the world. He will convict the world, notice, not we have to do it for Him. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So the work of the Holy Spirit in, in, in waking up our dead spirits, if you like, to spiritual reality and truth is to show us three things. To show us our own sin. He convicts us of sin. It's to show us God's righteousness, our sin, God's righteousness, and the coming judgment. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, we are left with the necessary responsibility to communicate the truth of these things to those who need to hear it. And so that's the challenge for us as Christians. How can we, how can we take seriously the words of Jesus, of course, ourselves, but how can we sensitively and graciously and truthfully communicate them to anybody else? Because remember, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now, we've sung this morning that God, I'm praying and call up, calling upon God as the God of revival. Amen? Lord, give us revival. <laughs> well, read the history of revivals and you will see that every time there is a distinct, powerful move of God in revival, in whatever context, in whatever culture, in whatever country, there is always a strong, if not an overwhelming sense of conviction of sin. Because when we have a revelation of God in all His glory and purity, what does that inevitably show us back? That light shining in my life shows up my impurity, unholiness, darkness. There's a conviction of sin. It's a healthy conviction because what we do with that then is we run to a Savior and say, Lord, cleanse me. Give me your righteousness. Take away my darkness and shine your light in my heart. But that's what we are expecting when we pray for revival, a conviction of sin. Now, I, <laughs> I sat on the bus the other day 
um, not, not just sat on it, I was riding on it actually, but, um, uh, and next to me on the, on the seat next to me, someone had left this little leaflet. I picked it up and, oh right, and it says here, a free gift of heaven or an eternity in hell, the choice is yours. Dun, da, da. My attention was grabbed. But actually, when I looked inside it, oh, it got worse and worse in, in, in one sense. I mean, the, the message got worse because it was, a, it was a serious. It goes like this. See what you think. It, it, it mentions some scriptures, and then it says this. Untold billions of souls through the ages have dropped down into this pit and are still burning and screaming miles beneath your feet right now. Oops. Now, we'll probably have different feelings about the tone of that. Um, first of all, actually, I don't even believe that's true. That hell is yet to be populated by people. Jesus talked about the being prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what hell is designed for, the devil and his angels. It's being prepared. It's, it, it, whatever the reality is, it's terrible. A separation from God in this separation we've read, um, read about. But, but this sort of scare tactic, it seems to me, is not... In my opinion, you may feel differently, and, I, and, I, and I'm not trying to convince you otherwise, but I don't see Jesus using that sort of, I'm, I'm trying to frighten people into the kingdom um, tactic. Um, but on the other hand, Jesus did speak about hell, and he did speak about judgment, and he did talk of, we read here, fiery furnace and the weeping, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we've got to grapple with that reality and then say, well, Lord, how do I, how do I stay faithful to, to, to that? Um, and, and down the ages, <laughs> you know, people have tried in different ways. I'll quickly tell you one story and see what you think of this one. In the 18th century, there was a very, very famous um, evangelist called George Whitfield. He was at the same time as John Wesley, both operating here in this country and across in, in, in America to, to huge fame and great effect many in, in outdoor preaching like, like Wesley did. But jo George Whit Whitfield was incredibly dramatic, theatrical, and flamboyant. And he had a voice as powerful as anyone else uh, uh, around, and he commanded the attention very dramatically of thousands of people in the open air. And, one, and on some occasions, he also set up some little scenarios, should we put it that way? And um, he would, um, so one of those scenarios was that he would talk, preach about uh, the coming judgment, and he would talk about the return of Jesus and, how, and the resurrection of people from the dead then, and then he would, he would, um, he would read out um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the last trumpet. And when that trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. But what he'd done was he'd positioned a man with a trumpet out of sight 
And at that cue of reading that verse, the man would blow a long, strong blast on his trumpet. Now, the audience were already kept wrapped with attention at his theatrical words, and you could hear a pin drop. And then the trumpet sounds, and people screamed with fear. Manipulative or okay? We'll vary on that one. We'll vary on that one. I quite like the Apostle Paul's words about how you communicate the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. I like that. That's good. Um, another famous preacher in the um, 19th century, Victorian England, was Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was not only the most famous preacher of his day, he also trained and helped other aspiring preachers to, to, you know, to mature and to, uh, 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 and to learn the the craft, as it were. And uh, I quite like his words. He, in, in his um, instructions to these trainee preachers, he said this once. He said, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. Let it be irradiated by a heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. But when you speak of hell, your ordinary expression will do. I think I would have liked to have listened to Charles Spurgeon preaching. That's the sort of personal um, thought I have. And so, um, so we have these, these two parables here in Matthew 13, and they talk of separation. They talk of the judgment to come. They talk of the chaff and the wheat being separated, the wheat, wheat from the weeds being separated, the good fish from the bad fish being separated, and, you know, all of these things that are just, like, taken for granted there by Jesus, that there is a devil, that there is a kingdom, the kingdom which is not the church, the kingdom which was not even Israel. He says, he says, he gives an interpretation of the reference points within this parable. Doesn't make it into an allegory. Doesn't make it mean something else, or each thing means something different. He explains the reference points and says the kingdom is the world. Yeah, the world. The kingdom that Jesus came into to, to bring in is the kingdom in this world. Now, these two, these two parables are only recorded by Matthew out of all the gospel writers. That's interesting in itself. You see, if you believe, like I do, that all Scripture is inspired by God, that the Holy Spirit moved these, these men and women who wrote the, wrote the pages of what we call the Bible now, not only did the Holy Spirit inspire the words, but He inspired the order of the words in which they appear. He inspired the gospel writers to include the material they included in the order that they included it, because they were doing it for a conscious reason, and Matthew was doing it because mainly his audience was one of Jews, a Jewish audience. And the Jews believed in an age to come. And it was a simple belief that we have this age now, this present evil age, and then, whomph, the Messiah comes, brings this age to an end, and the age to come then follows on after that. Jesus, though, with judgment, you see, coming 
in the middle. Jesus comes and says something very different. He says, the, the present evil age is what we're living in, and the kingdom of God has come into this present evil age, but it hasn't brought the, the, the present evil age to an end. It's invaded. The kingdom of God has invaded the present evil age, and there will be a messy mixture until the judgment that will come at the end. Now, that's a very, very different order of things. And so, the harvest, we need to thank God for this, the harvest is not yet, has not yet happened. Why should we thank God for that? I'll tell you why. Because we have, and so do other people have, the opportunity to repent. The opportunity to turn away from that which causes this world to be the broken, sinful, messed up place that it is because of broken, messed up, sinful people who inhabit it like us. And there'll be this messy mixture until the King comes again, Jesus, the Son of Man in all His glory, and the harvest happens. The kingdom fullness then will be brought in. The fullness of the kingdom. We've just tasted of something of the power of the age to come if we've come to Jesus already. We've tasted of it, but we haven't tasted all of it. So this kingdom fullness is yet to come, whereby this, this glorious creation that you were describing at the beginning will be renewed into everything that the Father created it to be and more besides. That people who are created, we created every single human being created in the image of God will be renewed to be the people that we were created to be and more besides. That the righteous will shine like the sun, as Jesus said, in the Father's kingdom. You see, there's a messy mixture now, and it doesn't often look like the kingdom has, has come because it hasn't come fully, but Jesus told in between his, 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 his parable and his explanation of the parable, in Matthew 13, he tells the short parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. So his point is, look, there's a whole gap between the kingdom coming and the fullness of the kingdom, but it's not that nothing is happening. Look what is happening. Something is happening. It's growing. It's changing. God is on the move. Not only that, this kingdom fullness is all about the restoration of everything in the universe to what God intended it to be. It is not just about your or my personal salvation, but praise God, it includes that as well. And so, he's talking about this cosmic kingdom yet to come in all its fullness, and he says, have you caught a glimpse of that? Straight after the the fishing net, or before the fishing net, he talks of the pearl of greatest price. He talks about the, what was the other one? The hidden treasure. The hidden treasure and the pearl of greatest price. He says, look, once you catch a glimpse, once you have a revelation of this amazing kingdom, you want to be part of it. You want to be part of it, and you can be part of it. And so you, it's worth giving up everything for. You've got to commit your whole life into this, not tack it on to something else. You need to repent. Change your mind. 
and invite the King, Jesus, to be Lord, not just Lord of your heart, but Lord of all. The early Christians in the Roman Empire were not persecuted because they said, Jesus is Lord of my heart. They were saying, Jesus is Lord, and Caesar isn't. They were, they were radical and prepared to die for their newfound relationship. And so every parable, including these, demands a response. I would suggest our response to this is probably at least twofold. First of all, passive, and secondly, active. First of all, it's a passive response in that we, those of us who are Christians, who have entered the kingdom of God already through faith in Jesus, we need to be patient. There is a messy mixture until the very end. We do not pray to get into power in order to bring in some cl cleansing, purifying um, uh, structure that cleanses the world. It will always be a messy mixture. Let's pray for revival, but it will not change everything in the world until the king comes. We need to be patient. Actively, we also need to be urgent. There's an urgency. There's an urgency. There's an urgency. Basically, judgment is coming. It is impending. Disaster and catastrophe are at the door. But the good news is, salvation is freely offered to all. There's a kingdom that will come finally when Jesus returns, and we can already now enter into it. You enter into it by turning away from trusting in yourself, putting your faith in Jesus, being baptized, and owning him as Lord of all, and following him as a disciple. And if you have not received Jesus as Lord of your life and Lord of all in that way, if you don't think you have entered the kingdom already, then there is time, but it's also urgent. Don't delay. Respond today in the name of Jesus. Amen.